Uh, we're in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. <clears throat> Hear now the word of our God. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side. In Christ's name, amen. What do you think of when you think of someone who is committed? Someone who is absolutely sold out to something. I think initially of Olympic athletes. At least in the old days when they had to be amateurs, you know, you had to work hard all the time. You, for, you laid aside usually worldly sorts of employment to focus on one thing with all of your energy, all of your capacity, all of your mind. Also, think of world-class musicians. There's much that they can't do that we ordinarily would enjoy because they're so focused on honing their skills and abilities and craft. Commitment to one thing often means a forsaking or not engaging in commitment in something else. When there is a, an overriding commitment, all things are seen in light of how it affects the primary commitment. I want us to think about commitment because that's a lot of what Jesus is talking about here in the midst of this passage. Commitment. But we have to start with his commitment to us. Jesus is committed to die, as the, sermon, uh, the text of the sermon indicates. But the big idea is that Christ died to make fully committed followers. In some ways, that's an overused phrase in evangelical circles. So forgive me for uh, using something that perhaps is a little overused. But that's really what he's getting at, I think, in the midst of this passage. We begin, of course, with something that's almost like a non-sequitur. It's like not connected. This is an odd passage in a number of ways. But let's begin with the idea that the nations began to come to Christ. John notes that among the pilgrims, there were some Greeks. And this does not necessarily mean they're from the island of Greece. Okay, um, This 
phrase could be understood in two main ways. Uh, the first way, which is probably less likely, is that it could refer to Jews who lived in the Hellenistic world outside of Judea. Based on kind of the context here, I'm thinking that's the least likely of the two options. And so I throw my lot in with the second option, and that is that it refers to what's called God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles, a.k.a. Greeks, because, you know, most of the world for the Jews was us and them, and them being often called Greeks because of the spread of Hellenistic culture. They were Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh. They embraced him, and yet they were not quite completely committed. They hadn't gone all the way, so to speak, uh, precisely because going all the way in conversion for males was a rather uh, probably unpleasant experience. Okay, Circumcision. All right. So they were people who, in a sense, were alongside Israel, but not, had not become fully part of Israel. And so they participated in the main feasts that Israel celebrated, but they couldn't necessarily go into the inner courts with the Israelites. Now, as I pondered this, a slight problem emerged. That problem starts in Exodus 12. For Exodus 12, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. Okay, So it's not just the law, but it is specifically dealing with the Passover, which is the feast that they were about to celebrate in Jerusalem at this time. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. So on the one hand, you have Exodus 12, which says uh, no foreigner, no Gentile can partake of Passover. But if we go to Numbers chapter 9, we read this interesting little thing. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover of the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. Okay, you're scratching your head yet? Okay. I was too. In fact, to a degree, I still am. But Numbers indicates that these people, sojourners, which would be distinct from foreigners, meaning that they are legal aliens, they're not just passing through, but they have residency within the land of Israel, were permitted to celebrate the Passover. They themselves are not part of Israel, and so this, I think, could be the genesis, so to speak, of the God-fearer. Those who embraced the God of Israel to an astounding degree, and yet had not yet entered fully into Israel. They were subject to the laws of the land, even though they were not Jews. They were able to go far enough as to be able to eat of the Passover, but they were not full Jews. And so we have these people, indicated by the Greeks in this text, who, like the Jews, were going to the place where God had showed them to celebrate the feast. 
Uh, we see in Deuteronomy 16 that God uh, speaks to Moses and addresses the future condition of Israel when they get into the land and notice mentioning to them that at some point God is going to designate a particular place and they are no longer to celebrate the Passover in their own homes, but they're all to go in festival to this one place, Jerusalem. What we find Interestingly enough, in light of the immediate context of this passage, is that the words of the Pharisees are truer than they realize when they say, the world has gone after him. They're only referring to the fact that large numbers of Jews were going after Jesus, but in addition to them, Gentiles were also beginning to go after Jesus. And so we see that the mission of Jesus has this worldwide scope revealed here. John records this, I think, for this very reason, to show his original audience, and therefore us as well, that salvation was extended beyond Israel. He was not just the Messiah for the Jews as the, as the heir to King David's throne, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so we see a fulfillment of the passages that we read earlier from Amos 9 and Acts 15, which quoted Amos 9, you may have noticed that, where David's fallen tent, the kingdom of David had fallen upon hard times. You know, there was no heir who was ruling over Israel at that point in time. You know, the the series of people who essentially destroyed uh, Israel. But the Romans are in charge, and they've got this guy, you know, Herod, who's in charge over them as their king, not a descendant of David. And so this fallen tent of David is now being restored as it was prophesied in days ago, years ago. The Gentiles additionally begin to find shelter under this restored tent of David. Jesus, who has just been revealed to be the king of Israel in the um, triumphal entry, is the one who is restoring the tent. And John wants us to think, oh, obviously Gentiles are coming in. I believe he really does want us to think in terms of Amos chapter 9. Now we see that they appear, they approach Philip. Not sure exactly why Philip. Um, but Philip is a little puzzled by their request to see Jesus, which means not, you know, see, oh, yes, I can see Jesus, he's over there, but to meet with Jesus, that kind of seeing Jesus, okay? When you say, Pastor, I want to see you, you're not saying to me that you want to be able to visibly see me, but you want to meet with me and interact with me. That's what's going on here, right? We all understand that. Philip's not sure. These guys are Greeks. They're probably from the Decapolis, which was near Galilee, which may be the reason why they approached Philip. Maybe they recognized his accent and said, this guy should get it. He might be able to get us in. Not exactly sure. But he goes to Andrew, and we see Andrew and Philip going to see Jesus. And really what happens is, Jesus never answers the question. (laughs) Once again, we see Jesus He's not operating on our little agenda. He's got his own mission to accomplish, and everything gets channeled through that. And so this is an opportunity, in a sense, for Jesus to go someplace different than where the Greeks, 
Philip and Andrew want him to go. So, Jesus, as we pause and think about this for a second, Jesus is not just for Jews, but indeed is the Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. Secondly, Jesus is fully committed to the salvation of the world. Okay, this event, this question, is really a trigger for Jesus' words and the declaration that the hour has come. And as we've seen this phrase pop up in John's Gospel before, it always points to the hour or the time of his death and subsequent resurrection. And so we see... uh, increasing admissions on the part of Jesus as to what's going on here. And everything in John's Gospel has been channeling us in to this point, to this place in history where Jesus is going to die. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. Doctrine is important. Very important. If we're going to talk about the person of Jesus, we get into the reality of doctrine about Jesus. So we can't just kind of dismiss doctrine. But all of his teaching is essentially irrelevant if there's no death of Jesus. Okay? His teaching alone, what I'm saying, is insufficient to save us. We are not saved by doctrinal propositions. We are saved by a dying, bleeding Savior. And I definitely believe doctrine is important, just in case anyone might be a little unsure of that fact. He clarifies what he says in terms of the hour has come, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And let us keep this in mind. His death is not the path, so to speak, of his glorification. It's not as though he dies and then he gets glorified. His death is a significant part of his glorification. Just as his resurrection is a significant part of his glorification. And that's strange to us because we usually think about it properly, okay, in terms of his humiliation. It's the culmination, his death is the culmination of his humiliation upon earth, but it's also his glorification. For what kind of God is this? That he is so committed to his people that he lays down his life for his people. His death is his glory not simply a pathway to glory, because it reveals himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world without which there is no salvation for the Jew and there is no salvation for the Greek. He begins to explain this with the use of an agricultural metaphor. Not many of us are farmers. Some of us are gardeners. We have at least one master gardener back there. So, for those of you who understand this, forgive me if I goof it up. Okay? But, Jesus explains this to them using this metaphor. And he says, unless the seed dies, it remains alone. 
unless Christ dies, he alone would be righteous. Okay? He'd be it. But he doesn't want to be alone in righteousness. And so death is the path he must go, just as the seed must die. And oftentimes, as farmers or gardeners, what you do is plant seed. Okay? You put the seed in the ground, and most seed is not like, say, an avocado. You know, some of you who like to take those avocado seeds and you stick the, the toothpicks in them and you put a little water and the thing comes up out of there. Normally a seed, in a sense, dies in that it, it, it rots. There are some seeds by which, uh, that are spread without our volitional activity by birds. Okay? The bird ingests the berry, for instance, goes flying away, leaves droppings at some point, and that's part of how the, the seed is broken down and now dead is ready to bring life. The seed must die for there to be life. And so Jesus is comparing himself in this fashion. Okay, If these disciples of his, if these God-fearers who are, so to speak, knocking on the door are to be saved, then Jesus must die. And so we see that people are often asked to die for their king, but that the king doesn't die for his people unless that king is Jesus. He's the only king whose mission it was to die for his people. Any, any other king who dies for his people, it's, it's because, well, someone has conquered and the king is now being put to death as a rebel or something such as that. But Jesus is willingly dying for his people. He's committed to them. Jesus is committed to the prosperity of the gospel and therefore lays down his life. The closest thing I can think of is, um, and, you, and now, thanks to the news, you get to hear more of this thing, but pregnant moms with cancer. who forego chemotherapy or other treatment for their cancer so that that child can be born first. And sometimes it means that woman dies. Jesus, so that the, the church can experience salvation, does not save himself, but lays down his life so that she might have life, that the church might experience salvation and blessing through his death. And having died, this seed in this metaphor bears much fruit. You don't just get, you know, with one seed, you don't get, you know, one tiny little stalk with one seed. You get a stalk with lots of seeds, lots of grains of wheat. Or if it's corn, you get lots of ears of corn so that you can eat some and also have something to plant next year. Okay? So there's this abundance of fruit that is seen in this metaphor, and Jesus is talking about this in the same way. There's going to be an abundance of fruit that comes from his death. As it talks about in Isaiah 53, he will be satisfied with the results, because they will not be meager but abundant. Verse 11 out of Isaiah 53, Out of the anguish of his soul 
he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And so we see two aspects to that in what Jesus does. These people who are unrighteous in and of themselves are going to be accounted righteous, or, their, or his righteousness will be imputed to them, placed in their account, because they have none of their own. Not only that, but we see that their transgressions, their sins have been pardoned, have been removed, because he has paid the penalty for them. And so we see what uh, we, we call the double imputation of, of Christ taking away our sins and bearing the punishment, but also giving us his obedience where we had none. So that there is much fruit. Many are saved because of his work. Jesus doesn't just hope that there is fruit. He doesn't just hope that some might believe, but he dies, as we've seen consistently throughout John's gospel, that he knows that God has ordained the fruit because God has chosen a people. He has given them to his son, and these are known as his sheep. And he lays his life down for his sheep, knowing that his sheep will hear his voice and will follow him. So Jesus' mission was not only to reveal the Father, as we see in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, but also to die for His people. Which brings us to the third point. Jesus calls us to be fully committed to Him. Here, in a sense, is the rub. I think we're all okay with hearing, about, hearing the fact that Jesus is fully committed to us, are we not? That's really good news. Very, very good news. Now, when we hear this next part, we have to hear it with Jesus being fully committed to us in mind. Okay? Otherwise, we do damage. Okay? We have to view this in light of Christ's full commitment to us that results in his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Jesus is saying here, as he continues, that he isn't the only one who is supposed to be fully committed. We are, too. Think of it this way before we get too far into this. Mowage. What happens if only one person is committed? They want to get committed. <laughs> they feel like they're going to go crazy. Okay, Both people need to be fully invested in a marriage for it to thrive and survive. Okay, There might be a short period of time where only one person is really kind of pulling the weight of both, but both people ultimately have to be fully invested in a marriage. Jesus is fully invested in us. Okay? So we don't have to worry about that part of it. But now we're talking about our side of it a little bit. 
Jesus' mindset is intended to be replicated in the lives of his disciples as the Spirit works in them. For instance, Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's important, that yours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you in union with Jesus Christ. And so this is not something you have to conjure, but it's something that comes to us through the grace of God because we are united to Jesus Christ. And that mindset? Humble service. It goes into the servant hymn. And it culminates, of course, in Jesus' obedience even unto death and death on a cross. 1 John chapter 2. By this we know that we are in Him. Oh, wait a minute. There's that in Him again. By this we know we are united to Christ. Okay? Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. And so while our testimony is not everything, it's something... If we say we are in Him, but we are completely unchanged, we're lying. Okay? Our salvation is completely in Christ, but if we are in Christ, things will change. Incrementally, sometimes slower than we want, but they will change. As I mentioned at lunch when we were... Um, the other day, we were, I think this was at lunch. I would ask Topher, but he's not here. Um, we were talking with guys about the, the wheels for the world, which you'll hear about in a few weeks. And I think this was the meeting. Talk about the stock market. Our sanctification is similar to the stock market. At least that's what this is, you know, the stock market as my advisor, my financial advisor tells me. It goes up and down, but it generally goes up. Okay? That's sanctification. It's not a straight line up. There are dips, and our confession acknowledges these dips in the, conf- in the, the chapters on assurance, uh, chapters on uh, good works, and a number of places. There's dips, but generally up. Okay? There, that's, there's a pattern, a general direction, even though today might be a horrible day filled with your sin and selfishness, or even a week or a month of your sin and selfishness. All right. Back to what Jesus says here. Whoever loves his life loses it. Now, this is um, one of the, the joys and wonders of English. Okay? First off, the word life here is uh, psyche. Okay? It's not... Uh, zoe or bios, two of the other words for life, you know, biological, and then that other word, zoe, um, which has, we usually used in eternal life, which is actually used at the end of this in terms of the promise. Okay? Whoever loves his soul or his existence, his self, okay? Fondness of your soul means that you protect it above all things. And so Jesus warns us about clinging to our own kingdom. 
but clinging to our own agenda. In a sense, clinging to life on my terms. Okay? He warns us about this rather sternly. Because as Jack Miller mentions, that if you um, give your heart to the Lord, what you end up doing is, what ends up happening is you realize how committed you are to your own well-being. Our commitment to one thing, if we try to live it out, we begin to realize all of the conflicting commitments that we have. And so what Jesus is getting at here is the conflicting commitments that need to die. If we live for those other commitments, we, not it doesn't say um, loses life, but really the word there is better interpreted or translated destroy. When I live for my idols, which happens, ask my wife or my children. There are times I over-respond to things because, in fact, I'm living for my kingdom, my idols. And when I live for my idols, I destroy things with my unrighteous anger. Or any other response I might have. When I live for my idols, my other commitments, I destroy things. And ultimately, destroy myself. And so do you. That's what Jesus wants us to remember. While we think we are trying to protect our lives, thinking that we can save our lives, we actually destroy our lives. Jesus makes a parallel statement to this in Matthew 16. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? My children are big Toby Mac fans. I am not a big Toby Mac fan. But I like that song that's rooted on, in this, this uh, passage in Matthew 16. I really appreciate that one. And I, and I have to be reminded of that often as well. It's been expressed by Jim Elliott in this way, He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. In other words, you're not a fool if you give up this earthly life and your kingdom, which you cannot keep to gain eternal life, which you cannot lose. Now, remember this. This is all within the context of Christ giving his life. And so this is not you earning your salvation. This is your response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We have to keep that in mind. He's, this is not a condition of salvation. This is part of your response for having already received the greatness of his salvation. Jesus continues and he says, Whoever hates his life or soul in this world will keep it for eternal life. And that's where the zoe comes in. Okay, Eternal life. That word hates is often a Semitic idiom 
for love less. So it's not an absolute term of love, hate, um, but it would be more like, um, I don't know, compared to steak, I hate meatloaf. Okay? When Amy serves meatloaf, I don't throw it out the door or anything like that. Um, but I'd rather have an ugly steak. Oh, yeah. So, it's, it's, a, it's a contrasting thing, not an absolute sort of thing here. So, he's not loving as much his life or soul in this world. And so, this is the picture of a person who is more committed to the kingdom of Christ than his own soul in this world. And that is the person that gains life or has life. So, taking from this, we, we see that following Jesus is not intended anyway to be half-hearted or halfway. But it does gain great grace reward. Why, why would Jesus say this in this context? Remember who the God-fearers were? They went halfway. We love the God of Israel, but you're not touching me with that knife. Okay? Jesus is calling for full commitment. Now, of course, we recognize from Acts 15, as well as Galatians, that that does not involve circumcision for us Gentiles. Praise God, right, guys? Okay. Um, but not going halfway, not being half hearted. We see this in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous phrase or sentence. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Or, someone from a different continent, Sadhu Sundar Singh. It is easy to die for Christ. It is hard to live for him. Dying takes only an hour or two, but to live for Christ means to die daily. Because every day there are new desires that rise up in competition to the kingdom of Christ that must be put to death in the power of the Spirit, as it talks about in Romans 8. Okay. These God-fearers are half-hearted. It was fear of something else, or perhaps pride, that kept them from this full commitment. But I want us to, as we think about this, to, to keep this in mind. It's very important. While we are saved by grace and not by works, through faith, grace itself is not op opposed to obedience and commitment. Grace is our only hope for obedience and commitment. In other words, we can't muster up commitment to Christ. That too, like faith, would be a gift from Him rooted in his commitment to us. Right? Jesus continues in this idea of serving him means to follow him, means to be where he is. In other words, again, this idea of the kingdom at all costs, which means, I think, the idea of I can't put conditions on my service to Jesus Christ. 
we've all heard the, the jokes, I think, about people who are willing to be missionaries but not to Africa. You know? I mean, I, I guess I could say, you know, Lord, I'm willing to be a pastor, but it needs to be a big church because I don't want to drive an old car. It has to be a big church because I don't want to live near the highway. I want to live in the foothills so I can look down in that beautiful sight of the valley, you know, and I want to have one of those infinity pools, you know. So, so Lord, if I'm going to be a pastor, it has to be a pastor of that kind of church that enables me to do that kind of thing. We, we are so prone to put conditions upon our following Jesus, upon our serving Jesus. We all do it. And it's passages like this that we need to come across where Jesus reminds us, did I put conditions on this? I'm fully invested. Come join me. Come. I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. It may not mean the house on the hill. It may not mean a new car. But I got you. You're mine. Jesus' mission included his death. At the very least, our mission in union with Christ means the death to our agenda. And sometimes it means our physical death. Think of Jim Elliot and the rest of that missionary team. The only reason he went to South America was because he was not a fool. He knew he could not keep this earthly life and he knew that in Christ he had eternal life and so he wasn't concerned about the comforts of this life or about the possible consequences as he went, which did mean that he and the rest of the team died at the hands of the people they had come to save by the work of Christ. And in fact, in a sense, it was their death that opened the door for them to believe because they finally saw the depths of their guilt and the riches of Jesus Christ. So, no conditions on our service. And we have this hope that just as the Father honored Jesus, which we also see in that Philippians chapter 2 passage, Jesus promises that he will honor all who follow and serve Jesus. However imperfectly we might do that. So commitment is something that we, in others anyway, that we often admire and that we often aspire to. But commitment is something that is very hard for us because it exposes our distractedness. Just as we talked about with the law earlier um, from the confession, it reveals the ways, it's a mirror that reveals how far short of the law we are. Okay? Commitment reveals our fears. It reveals the idols of our hearts. We are only committed to that which we value most in this world. And Jesus calls us to be committed to him precisely because 
He has revealed his commitment to us in his sacrificial death for us. He revealed that he treasured us more than his own earthly experience in laying down his life for us. And as we meditate upon this, we will begin to increasingly treasure him and therefore grow in our commitment to him. When we see that he is the seed that died to bear much fruit, and we are part of that fruit, we become willing to be a seed that's willing to die. Let's pray. Father, in some ways, these are hard words from the mouth of our Savior. These are words that are intended to rock our world a little bit, to shake us up and to, uh, to realize, uh, are we in Him? Are we resting in Christ? Uh, are, are we looking to His perfect righteousness? Um, or do we look to Him alone to have taken away our sin? In other words, do we treasure Him? Father, may our hearts not condemn us if we are in Christ. For we know that perfect love casts out fear. And so come by the power of the Spirit and deal with our hearts this morning. For those of us who are in Christ, encourage us even as you challenge us. But fathers, Father, for those who are not yet in Christ, we ask that you would overcome those obstacles, those idols of their heart, the fear and the pride that keep them from being in Christ the fear and the pride that keep them resting in their own obedience, that they may fully partake of Christ and Christ alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.